Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ruminations from Pardes. And I'm your host, Shlomo Ben David. And this week, I'll be doing two ruminations. It's kind of a makeup for last week, um, because the only episode I did last week was on Bain Hamitzarim. So I figure I let people take it in, because there is just so much there to digest, to internalize, and the importance of the three weeks, which we are still in the middle of. And yes, it is Rosh Hodesh Av. And it's usually customary or in Halakha that we do not eat meat. This is a Sephardic Halakha, which tends to be a little more stringent, which a bit of a surprise is that the Ashkenazi, if I'm correct, do eat meat, but only on certain days. But in Sephardim, the nine days leading up to the ninth of Av, no meat is consumed, which is part of the morning process. Um, I did create another group on Telegram. Uh, it's called um, Halakha Yomit, uh, Yalkut Yosef, based on the rulings of uh, Ovadiah Yosef, who was the previous Sephardic rabbi in Israel, which a lot of Sephardics uh, look to. Um, as a matter of fact, he has a 15-volume set on his rulings, which are available in most uh, Jewish bookstores and can be found online, like at uh, judicaplace.com is another great place to go. So a little advertising there for Judica Place. Um, I do shop there, um, but primarily um, you can also acquire a lot of other resources on Art Scroll. one of which I do highly recommend is Daniel Gladstein's book, the Darkness to the Dawn has a lot of really good insights um, and understanding as to why things happened the way they happened and why it's incumbent upon us to do Tikkun Olam, something that will be touched on in this first rumination that I'll be going over. So without further ado, let's get into it. So rumination 40, why is repair better than never building? Why is repentance so necessary? There are some questions that we will never be able to answer. Some are so far beyond our comprehension, we only suspect there is a question there, waiting to be asked, and yet we cannot articulate it. Repentance is one of those subjects that appears straightforward and yet raises questions that beget questions unspoken and incomprehensible, the answer being even further beyond our grasp. Both traditional Christianity and Hasidic Judaism have attempted to ask and even suppose some answers to the questions of sin and repentance. Christianity has posited opposing theories of of predestination and free will. Hasidic Judaism has given us the concept of tikkun olam, repair of the world, and provided not only the questions regarding the origin and purpose of sin, but some supposed answers as well. But all of these are only man's feeble attempts to explain away nagging questions about our questions, that there is something inexplicably beyond our questions. No doubt the answers are even more remote. Uh, to that, I would add regarding Hasidic Judaism's approach to um, Shuva 
which the root of that word is shuv, to return. A very important foundational text of Kasidut is Titania, or otherwise known as Likute Amarim. This is probably the foundational text of Hasidism. It goes into exquisite detail on how one can become pious. But there's a level even beyond piety. There's the level of the Zadik, the one that everyone looks to, which is something that we, as followers of Yeshua, the rabbi, the Jewish rabbi, I should point out, who taught the Torah and in no way ever proclaimed himself to be God, I want to stress that point. He never, ever did. He's a rabbi who lived according to the Torah, just like every other Jew did in his day. So this is very important that we always need to be reminded of, that he points the way back to Hashem. It's the Zadik that connects us with Hashem or Devak, our attachment to Hashem. So, however, we only really know what we have been told. Try as we might to plumb the depths of philosophy, in the end, what we are really left with is what Scripture clearly tells us. And it tells us quite plainly that sin is rebellion against the commandments of Hashem. It tells us that he hates sin. It tells us that the correct response to him is always simple obedience. There's never a right or wrong time to do teshuva. Teshuva is a constant act on our part, consciously and subconsciously, always. We need to conduct repair within ourselves. Because if we do this within ourselves, instead of pointing the finger at our fellow man, oh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you'll never get anywhere. Um, it's been my experience that people just simply don't want to be held to a standard, and that standard is the Torah, the revealed will of Hashem. And it is not a mystery, despite what some people may say. Call it tikkun olam or teshuva. Call it repentance or surrender. In the end, it is only action that we are truly free to take in response to our undeniable rebellion against the instructions of the Almighty. When we begin to ask such things as, what instructions? What commandments? Of course, we're denied the necessity of repentance. When we begin to make excuses such as, God does not really expect me to do, say, not do, fill in the blank, does he? If you're asking such a question, then your repentance is not sincere. The sages also say in the Talmud that one who does teshuva out of fear rather than love, it's as if he is not doing anything at all. When we argue that some thing does not does or does not apply to us because we are Jewish or because we are Gentile, we are denying the simple, acceptable response to the Almighty. Now I'll point out Shaul's words in Ephesians chapter 
chapter 2, The One New Man. This is the work of Messiah, as Shaul points out. Also, also read Romans chapter 11 as a reminder. Those two chapters I just mentioned are clear on the matter. There is no distinction with Hashem. But, as always, Hashem's chosen people are the Jewish people because He brought them out of Mitzrayim, He brought them to Himself, He gave them the Torah, and those of us who choose to cling to Him must learn from the Jewish people. There's just no way around that, period. You can make up whatever theology or religious system you want to, but in the end, it is apart from the revelation of the righteousness and holiness of Hashem from Sinai, the Torah. And what is our response? It should be repent, teshuva, shuv, return. This was Yochanan the Immerser's message in the wilderness at the River Jordan. So repent, Teshuvah, it was the message in Genesis 3. It was the message in Genesis 6. It was the message at Sinai. It was the message of the prophets. It was the message of the apostles. It is the message of Messiah. It is the good news message. It is simply repent, Teshuvah, you shall return. Hashem has spoken. He has defined His holy standard. It is the Torah. Disobedience is sin. Man's only response to that should be repent, teshuva. Anything else remains pure and simple rebellion. Another good definition for sin is a missed opportunity. Do we really want to miss opportunities of obedience that come our way because Hashem brings brings them our way constantly? And especially in this day and age where we are constantly tested by those who who don't love Hashem, who don't serve Him, who don't walk in the way. But what's important is let others argue about whether some commandments apply to this dispensation or whether we are under the jurisdiction of the new covenant or whether a commandment applies to Gentiles or not, or that God cannot require repentance for salvation, or that denies grace. In the end, all those mechanizations and lies are the same tactic the enemy has used since the garden, which is the poison of the nakash, designed to get us to question the things we really, really do know. If Hashem commands us as His children, He expects us to obey Him. Again, He expects us to obey Him, not man. And to disobey Him is sin, period. And I've heard this many times from pulpits in my tenure within the so-called church. The deriding of the Holy Torah and of Moshe Rabbeinu, who brought down the Torah with his own hands. Such individuals should be questioned as to why they are teaching in the first place. Why don't they teach genuine teshuva? But these next verses from uh, 1 John 
which is one of my favorite letters, and I find myself really quoting from it quite often. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not keep on sinning. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Messiah Yeshua HaZadik, the righteous. And he himself is to propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. I like what the CJB says. The complete Jewish Bible It says he has attained the goal, or an understanding of what the goal is. By this we know that we are in him. And that's first John one eight through two five. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Oh, wait a minute. I thought Jesus took away all my sin. But John is saying here we need to purify ourselves. An interesting statement on his part. Whoever keeps on committing sin also commits torlessness. And sin is torlessness or violation of Torah commandments, especially a positive commandment. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now, when it says take away our sins, that means we're not rid of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, that part of us that wants to sin. No, the desire to obey him is implanted in us, which helps us to not sin against him or our fellow man. Whoever abides in him, see this is important. Whoever abides in him does not keep on sinning. Whoever keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. And this is my favorite verse out of this uh, chapter. He who keeps on practicing righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Righteousness is not just forensic. It's just not accepting the atoning work of Mashiach. Because why? He has explained it numerous occasions that obedience to Torah is a requirement of being attached to him and thus attachment to Hashem. Again, he points the way to Hashem. He points the way back to Torah. He brings us close to the Avoda Hashem, the service of Hashem. This is the one of the main purposes of Messiah. Is this very important work because Shaul says in Ephesians chapter 2, again, he says, we were created for good works. So that was 1 John 3, 
3 through 7. Remember, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. It's an active, present tense desire to be cleansed from the filthiness of the world, not to be identified with the world or the things that are in it. Because John also says in this first letter, he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you see, the questions that are unspoken may be deep, and a lot of this is mystical, by the way. But the issue really is simple. On the Peshat level, when we disobey the words of the living God, that's called sin, rebellion, missing the mark, missing an opportunity for obedience. When we obey, that's called righteousness. When we recognize our disobedience and obey, that's called repentance or teshuva. Returning to Him. It's not just a change of mind, but a conscious effort on the part of the one who chooses to walk in the way of Hashem, not to do the things that are contrary to the revealed will of Righteousness and holiness of Hashem, the Holy One, blessed be He. So what are we waiting for? And this quote from Malachi really is poignant. Remember the Torah of Moshe, my servant. This is poignant because we're in the middle of the three weeks, and one of the things that we're told to do is to remember the Torah. I had read that in Daniel Gladstein's book, In My in the last episode on Bain Hamid Serim, this is really important. Remember the Torah of Moshe, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Hashem. Why would it be a great and dreadful day? If you're disobedient, it would be, but if you're not, it will be a glorious day. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. So, I think it's abundantly clear in this rumination the need for teshuva, constant taking inventory within ourselves. You know, it's... It helps us treat our fellow man a whole lot better as well. And it's a healthy thing as well. You know, when we don't keep things bottled up inside, but rather express them to our friends who are close and who who understand us and will help us along be there, you know, be there for one another. After all, the Torah was given to an entire nation all at once, whereas all the various man-made religions came about through just a single man, requiring dogmatic adherence. But no, this is what sets the Torah apart. This is what, it's divinity. And the sages clearly state in the Talmud that anyone who does not believe in the divinity of the Torah is considered a heretic. Anything other than the way of Hashem is heresy, plain and simple. And I want to share a little bit from Rav Dessler um, from last week. 
This from last week's Parsha. So, the tribes of Gad and Reuben, part one. And I'm just going to share, uh, not not all of it, just some pertinent parts. Um, we know that every person's task is to increase the amount of Kiddush Hashem in this world. As we have explained previously in this volume, everything in the world can serve as a clee for this sublime purpose. In our holy books, we find that there are holy sparks in exile, in the darkness of the world, and it is the task of Israel to release these sparks and restore them to their place of origin. We learn, too, that there are some sparks which are meant for each particular individual to redeem. They are sparks of his own neshama, which have been taken captive by the Sitra Akra, the other side, or the evil kingdom. The focus of evil in creation. We are aware that these ideas allude to very lofty concepts whose full import is far beyond our comprehension. However, we shall try and make them as much as possible a little more comprehensible. The Power of Free Will All the obscurity in creation is capable of being transformed into a revelation of God's glory through human free will, Everything in creation holds within it the potential for Kedush Hashem. Every human being can change an item from impure to pure by making it a vehicle for service. A vehicle for serving Hashem. Say we are faced with this worldly matters which hold a fatal attraction for human beings. If a person makes use of them only to the extent that they are needed for his service and no more, then he has created a revelation of God's glory and a sanctification of his name. He has shown that there is someone in the world who has seen the true purpose of creation. The Yetzirah itself is nothing but a vehicle for Kedush Hashem. Its purpose is to challenge the person to exercise his free will to defeat it. It is written that the power of defilement feeds on the sparks of holiness that it contains. Tuma continues to exist only by virtue of its potential for Kedush Hashem. This is its ratzon dietre, its purpose in life. Without Kedush Hashem, there is no point in anything existing, and therefore no existence. If you could imagine anything that had no longer any potential for Kedusha, it would cease to exist, and that itself would be its Kedusha Hashem. It is in this sense that Tuma feeds on the holy sparks it contains. It continues to exist only by virtue of its potential for Kedusha. The idea that an individual has holy sparks, which are his particular duty to redeem, means that each person has his own allotted portion in the Kedush Hashem. All his abilities, his midot, and the test he has to undergo are suited to this basic task. This task is assigned to him from above. It constitutes his full spiritual potential, which in some contexts is referred to as his neshama. In this sense, a person's neshama is not his ego, but the particular ideal to which he should devote his life and the totality of spiritual powers granted him to complete his task. He becomes aware of his potential through the circumstances in which he is placed and the test he is given. Each test challenges him 
to realize part of his spiritual potential, or, in other words, releases one of the holy sparks contained in his neshama. In other words, when we seize an opportunity for obedience, we gather in the sparks of holiness. We bring them from the other side, the Sitra Agra, over to the side of holiness, Kedusha. The spiritual task of Gad and Reuven. The tribes of Gad and Reuven belonged to the generation of knowledge who received the Torah at Sinai and were constantly aware of the presence of God in their midst. When they asked Moshe to be allowed to settle in Transjordan because of the vast quantity of livestock that they possessed, one may be sure that it was not merely economic considerations which moved them. Moshe objected very strongly to their request because he understood they wanted to opt out of fighting for the land of Canaan. This, he felt, would be bad for the morale of the nation. When they assured him that they would fight alongside the other tribes in conquest of Canaan, he was prepared to grant their request. If their motives for wishing to settle in Transjordan were not merely economic, what were they? The tribes of Reuben and Gad certainly realized that the great number of sheep and cattle had been given were meant to be vehicles for Kedush Hashem. Their first concern was to ensure that their property would not cause Kelul Hashem. It is not advisable to pasture sheep near arable land because of the damage they are likely to do to the crops. In fact, it later became prohibited to raise sheep in the arable parts of Eretz Israel. Transjordan, however, had large areas of pasture land and therefore was very suitable for raising sheep and cattle. There they would cause no damage to their neighbors. A Hasty Inheritance Nevertheless, our rabbis criticized their decision. They applied to them the verse, An inheritance which is overly hasty at the beginning will not be blessed in the land, in the end. Rashi comments on this verse. An over-hasty inheritance, one who rushes in confusion to be first, to be the first to take, like the tribes of Gad and Reuben who hastened to take their portion in Transjordan and spoke in confusion, putting their sheep before their children, will not be blessed in the land, as we find that they were exiled several years before the rest of Israel. They are also accused of separating themselves from their brethren because of their money. What is one of the common things in this world that we see? Materialism, the desire to acquire things. You know, hoarding is one of the, it's becoming a, a paramount problem. Why? Because people have no real connection to one another. It produces loneliness. And what some people do to alleviate the pain of that loneliness is to acquire things or even overindulging in eating. Again, these are all materialistic manifestations of a spiritual condition that we see today. All rectification that needs to be performed for these things. You know, again, just being there for one another, having that connection, you know, is so important. Their motives were certainly of the highest level, but because of their high spiritual level, our rabbis find cause for criticism. It may be well 
have been the right inheritance for them, but why did they have to rush to take it so soon? Why not wait until the division of the land was on the agenda? To the keen eyes of Khazal, this shows that subconsciously there were other motives in operation. In however subtle a form, economic considerations also played a part. To confirm this, our rabbis note that the tribe of Gad and Reuben said to Moshe, We shall build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our children. Putting their livestock before their children. Of course, this may well have been just a slip of the tongue. But our rabbis were well aware that slips of the tongue are significant and betray the speaker's subconscious thoughts. It shows that they had their priorities confused. Anyone who has to busy himself with the affairs of this world because this is where his portion lies, even if his motives are basically for the sake of heaven, has to be very much on guard that his business does not develop into love of this world for its own sake, at the cost of his serving Hashem. Remember what John says, he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We see that even children of Reuben and Gad, in spite of their very high level, were misled by their slight subconscious attachment to their property into making hasty decisions and getting their priorities wrong. As a result, they lost their blessing. Blessing means the expansion of Kalim, used for spiritual purposes. It is heavenly aid, which the Mishnah calls the fruits of a mitzvah in this world. If a person becomes attached to material things for their own sake, then the blessing is withdrawn, for it no longer is good for that person. The Right Priorities Rabbi Yitzhak Arama illustrates this with a parable. When workmen build a house, they construct gangways with rough timber, even hammering together broken planks for this purpose. But for the interior decorations and furniture, only the best polished wood is used. No one is particular about things which are temporary and serve a secondary purpose, but only about things which are permanent and primary. Our stay in this world is only temporary, while our spiritual life is permanent and primary. It is surprising, therefore, how many of us make our material occupations primary and our Torah secondary. When the tribes of Reuben and Gad entered the land of Canaan and saw the wheat fields and the orchards, they said, Surely a spoonful of this land is worth more than a double handful in Transjordan. Then they said, But still, we choose it for ourselves. It was our decision. A person feels bound by any choice he makes, even when he begins to realize it could have been a mistake. All this was said about the people of the great generation whose very sins could be considered to be spiritual nature. Of a spiritual nature, excuse me. How much greater is the danger in our times? A person should ponder well before deciding what the main thrust of his life will be, material affairs or Torah. Everyone knows in his own heart what for him is primary and what is secondary. One has to educate himself in such a way that he will be able to direct his life toward the primary 
and not, God forbid, toward the secondary. Some very wise words and very fitting with this week's uh, rumination. And now what we'll get into is the next one, Rumination 41. Why are we commanded to love God? Why do the theologians discount this prime command? To be fair, theologians do not think that they discount the command to love God. But if they understood the command, as do those who make the Shema a part of their life experience, their appreciation of this commandment would be far better. And this is a question I often ask um, any Christian who says that the Torah is done away with. If we are no longer under the law, as some misquote Galatians, are we still under this law? If I am under grace, am I free to cast aside the commandment to love God with all my heart, soul, and might? If so, then why did Yeshua declare this to be the greatest commandment in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-eight? Clearly, the theologians do not understand what it means to be commanded to love Hashem, your God, if they think it survives their scribe's knife, where they cut whole portions of Scripture in favor of their tradition. This is a, an important statement that I'll expound on for a little bit. There is a difference between the traditions which are in Judaism and those that are created by man outside of Torah Judaism. There is, there is a stark dichotomy there. Because a lot of people in Christendom always point to the rabbis and say that's traditions of men when in fact it is the opposite. These are generations of rabbis who sat down and hammered out what life is to be like within the community. And it's not decided by just one man. It's 70 Torah scholars or Torah kacham in Hebrew that weigh every possible angle, every word, every, every single letter within the Tanakh to derive the legal codes which are found in the Sulkan Aruk, the Code of Jewish Law, and other halakhic works down through the centuries. These are not just arbitrary rulings. They are well thought out. And yes, you know, at times hotly debated because they would rather get it right than get it wrong. You know, this is why it's better to violate a rabbinic commandment than an actual Torah commandment, whether it is positive or negative. Because, as Yeshua said, to whom much is given, much is required. And to whom much is required, he will be beaten with many stripes. This is a halakhic standard. 
the sages use this term throughout the Talmud. Now, of course, they avoid any physical punishment, but rather sternly warn the person who is in violation of such halakhic standards that have their root and basis in the Torah. I want to make that absolutely clear that every halakhic decision that was handed down in the Talmud, which can be found in the works of the post scheme down through the centuries, and the work that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the Yalkut Yosef, and also the Mishnah Berur, which is what the Ashkenazi use, are a means by which one lives a holy life. These are not matters of strictness. No, it's all about holiness. It's all about the service of Hashem. Being set up, you know, being set apart, being identified with Hashem. That's what all this is really about. And this really, to me, demonstrates how much they love Hashem. That they are willing to do this. But then again, they were following Moshe's instructions in the book that we just started this week, uh, Devarim where we find the greatest mitzvah of all, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It's the watchword of our faith that is recited twice a day. As a matter of fact, even a third time just before you go to bed. And that typically that's an hour before you actually go to bed. Uh, according to the opinion of some uh, post-scheme. And I think um, in Sokhan Aruch, he rules in that way, or he brings that opinion. So, no, to love Hashem your God is not merely an esoteric thing. We are not commanded to have nice feelings for God. We are not commanded to merely speak about our deep love for Him. We are commanded to love Him with all our heart, our soul, our might. Those are not accidental words. They are intentional. They pertain to all of our human existence. Our all. The last part of that phrase in Hebrew is meodeka, everything that you have, meaning that some, in some commentaries and the rabbinical ones, Hashem gives you everything. Let's use Parnassah as an example of that, livelihood. Hashem gives you livelihood. You demonstrate our love for Him by giving sadaka from what we earn to those who are uh, needy. And this shows that we are humble and that we acknowledge that it's Hashem that gives us Parnassah, the ability to earn a living, because it all emanates from Him, from His goodness. And this is what's important. So this is one aspect of Mayodeka at the end of 
Devarim 6.5. Those who think that they can love God and still ignore His will for them can think again. Love and obedience always go together. Love and fear always go together. And when the word fear is used in this rumination, it is the word yireh, a reverential fear, a healthy respect for the words of Hashem because there are no words like His words. There is far more to this command, love Hashem your God, than meets the eye of the theologian who is more interested in his hermeneutic traditions than Scripture. Far more. It is why Yeshua called this command the greatest, because it contains all the rest. Beloved, the Shema is a call of complete allegiance to the King. The Shema is a call to love the King. That means to completely obey Him. You cannot love the King and disregard His loving instructions found within the Torah. This actually reminds me of a Rashi on Bamidbar chapter 12 because the servant, and this is Rashi's comment on Bamidbar chapter 12. Um, I can't quite remember the verse offhand, but it's there. Um, it's, and Rashi comments that the servant of the king is the king, referring to Moshe Rabbeinu, that he in his service to Hashem, bringing down the Torah and telling us in, Dev, in Devarim, which is Mishnah Torah, because he repeats all the mitzvot of the Torah, both positive and negative, that we are to love him and that we are to acknowledge his unity. And so this following verse really can be seen as, you know, Mishnah Torah, you know, Yochanan repeating, because that's what the word Mishnah means, repetition. And he says, now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in in him you attain the goal you you get closer to the goal when we keep his mitzvah when we perform them because that's our attachment to hashem by this we know that we are in him he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk holek is the hebrew word just as he walked yeshua walked in complete obedience to the torah and to the words of the sages. And as a quick reminder, whenever you read the Gospels, the best way to understand them is that he repeated many times the words of the sages, in particular, Shammai and Hillel, who were the two main schools of thought, or the two uh, Beit Midrashes that existed uh, shortly before his time. And he agreed or disagreed but he never said that you shouldn't listen to them and what they had to say because Yeshua gave his own take on certain halakhic matters.
So this is very important to remember. So Yeshua walked this way, and so should we. So, and now I have a little bit from Rav Dessler on this week's Parsha, Devarim, Perspectives of Mercy. And the very first verse of Sefer uh, Devarim, one of the place names mentioned is Dizahav, meaning enough gold. Our rabbis take this as an allusion to the golden calf. Thus did Moshe say before God, Lord of the universe, the silver and gold, Zahav, that you showed, showered on Israel until they said, Enough, die. This caused them to make the golden calf. They illustrate this with a parable. There was a man who had a son. He bathed him, anointed him, fed him well, hung a purse full of money around his neck, and set him down at the entrance to the house of harlots. What could that son do but sin? Eliyahu, in his prayer on Mount Carmel, also said, It is you who have turned their hearts backwards to worship idols, thus expressing a similar idea. And the Gemara concludes, God eventually agreed with Moshe, as it says, I gave them much silver and gold. They made it into a Baal. What does all this mean? There are two ways of looking at things, the way a master views the work of his servant and the way a father looks at the deeds of his son. The master looks at his servant with a critical eye. He is interested only in whether or not the servant fulfilled his task, but the father looks with merciful eyes. If the son fails, the father will blame himself for giving the son too hard a task or think of other far-fetched excuses. If the son does something good, however small, the father's love will magnify it. Two modes of Kiddush Hashem Every individual, every generation, and all generations together have a portion in the purpose of creation. The Kiddush Hashem, which God has allotted to them, is their task to reveal this by choosing the good against all the temptations and obstacles he has placed in their path. If they fail, and God has left it entirely in their hands to fail or succeed, God can view the situation with merciful eyes. He can say that the tests they were given were indeed very difficult, and they can hardly be blamed for failing under those circumstances. But the purpose of creation will not be fulfilled without some positive contributions from human free will. There must be some arousal from below. God will therefore look upon the little good that they did as sufficient to provide the arousal from below, through which he can shower upon the world the influx of holiness required to bring the world to its perfected state. In this way, all the Kiddush Hashem which mankind was supposed to produce will have been accomplished. What has not been produced by the direct action of human beings will be made up through the revelation of God's great mercies, our Father's mercies on His children. By magnifying their good deeds and minimizing their failures, He will reveal His loving kindness to such a tremendous degree that all Kedus Hashem required from creation will have been achieved. 
Eliyahu adopted the first approach, magnifying their achievements. He drew out of the people by means of a miracle the acclamation, Hashem is God, and asked God to accept this as their full repentance. Moshe Rabbeinu followed the other approach, minimizing their failures. He argued that taking into account the masses of silver and gold they had been given and the fact that they had lived among the idol-worshipping Egyptians for so long, they had been given a great, greater temptation than anybody could be expected to overcome. The Essential Contribution of the Zadik One more thing is needed to bring about such a drastic change in God's perspective. There must be a Zadik in the generation who is prepared, so to speak, to challenge God to look at the world from a different viewpoint. This Zadik is convinced that we could not withstand the darkness that would befall the world if the standard of strict justice were enforced. He is prepared, as Moshe was, to sacrifice himself for the sake of God's people Israel. And God whose love is so vastly who and God whose love so vastly exceeds any human love may agree. And may we merit that ourselves. And may we do the same for those who fall short, who are in our lives, who Hashem has put in our path, that we take such individuals under our wing because it's like Yeshua said in Matthew 23, you know, call no man your father on earth, which in rabbinical sense means that the one who teaches you Torah is your father. And he is merciful, patient. He takes you by the hand when necessary and leads you along, teaches you what you need to know in the fulfillment of the will of Hashem. And this is very important. This is often gets uh, mis- this is also of course misunderstood by a lot in Christendom because they think, oh, you should forget about the traditions of the rabbis. No. See, this is one of those traditions that are very well founded in Scripture and should not be ignored or simply cast aside, just like the commandment to love Hashem. Because when we take some someone under our wing and we teach them Torah. We have to be patient with them. We gotta be. You gotta show mercy because Hashem shows us mercy so often. His perspective changes all the time, and why? Because there's a zadik in the generation who is persuading Hashem not to exercise strict judgment, and we can be that zadik who does the very same thing. We can intercede. We can ask Hashem, please. You know, I'm working with this guy. You know. So, and he will, if if we merit it, and which we can. It's all, it's very possible, and it's not hard. And I also like what John says, and his commandments are not burdensome, First John 5, 3. So, those are some thoughts I'd like to leave you with. And, and again, I'll repeat the last part of First John Two, three through six. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Bezrar Hashem that we would be able to do this that brings down the plentiful blessings of mercy and goodness from Hashem.